0: Hello, everyone. Get my notes up here. There we go. Uh, we are in a series on the parables. It's always worth repeating. Um, we are about third of the way through it right now. We wanted to, and we set at the start of the year. To, we felt the need to teach through on the kingdom of God. And we thought a good means of doing it would be to teach on one of the main ways Jesus teaches on it, uh, being the parables. These little stories that have both a simple and kind of clear message, but also have this way of winding their way into your mind until they kind of upturn everything. Uh, I was thinking about this, and they seem like they're the, like a seed that falls by a sidewalk and then slowly goes in and you get a little plant at first which is just what you expect it's a parable you get a story it's not like they were sitting here when you have parables jesus wasn't telling stories everybody just thought he was a great storyteller and like 15 years later like oh the seeds the kingdom of heaven it was they knew he was telling a point but the point gets in there like the seed it slowly works its way down that eventually the roots take such hold that they cause the sidewalk and the road to suddenly be shifted And what had been a smooth path had been interrupted and been changed. And the intention of a parable is not simply to make a point, but it is to wind its way deep inside of us and to change what we do. As Terry um, mentioned last week, Klein Snodgrass, he calls his book on the parables stories with intent. And the intent of the parables is not just to give information, but to change the way we view the world and the way we live in it. So that's why we wanted to approach the kingdom through these stories, because we don't simply want to come away as people who can better describe the kingdom. We want to come away as people who see the world through a kingdom lens and who live lives transformed by this kingdom. So we started off looking at kind of very high-level parables. We talked about how the kingdom moves forth. We talked about how valuable the kingdom is, how the kingdom coexists with the other powers in this world, and then we've moved into more day-to-day, more detailed parables, talking about forgiveness and about how God seeks after the lost. And we're continuing that path of staying on more specific ones this week. And looking at something, it's in Luke 14, if you want to turn, we're looking at something that is crucial, if not the crucial element to a life of discipleship. Uh, from Jesus, and for that reason, we'll let him speak about it. So this is Luke 14, starting in verse 25. As soon as I find it. Now great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build a tower and was not able to finish. Or what king? going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks, asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As always, it's good to consider the context in which these things take place. And if this sounds repetitive coming from me, I've now realized that I have accidentally been preaching through Luke backwards. Um, A few months ago, I did the opening to Luke chapter 16. Three weeks ago, I did Luke 15, and now I'm doing Luke 14, the back half. Um, So I feel like I'm repeating myself because I am. Uh, One takeaway, though, last week and three weeks ago, I said I wasn't sure why they threw manure on salt or salt on manure more accurately. Um, it is because it slows down the fermentation process of manure, make, uh, making it better for fertilization. It's neither here nor there, but I just wanted to answer the question from three weeks ago. But this takes place during Jesus' tr- uh, march to Jerusalem. In Luke 9, he is identified as the Messiah. He asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Jesus, so Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the promised king, the one we are anticipating. And Jesus goes, good now I have to go to Jerusalem where they're going to arrest me, beat me, kill me, and then I'll rise again. And he turns and starts going to Jerusalem. And Luke 9, 9, though I think it's the middle end of 18, takes place along this walk to Jerusalem as Jesus is steadily going towards his death. He is the Messiah that was promised. He is the king that's come. And he is going to vanquish the evil powers, but the way he is going to do it is completely unexpected from what they're looking for. He is going to die upon a cross and be risen in victory, defeating Satan, sin, and death. So this story takes place in the middle of that, between the recognition of him as the Messiah and his death upon the cross and resurrection. And it's on that path that he tells a series of parables. As he's journeying, you see there's crowds that are following. It says he addresses the great crowd here. And we shouldn't think of these crowds as being like Jesus is teaching in church and this is just his disciples out around him, not that you're my disciples, but his disciples are about him and maybe the odd person they got dragged there by their friend. As he's journeying, he has his disciples with him who are a mixed bag themselves. He also has people who oppose him. The next chapter is addressed to the scribes and the Pharisees who are basically walking along with him trying to figure out why he's wrong and how they can kill him. And then there's just this great mixed crowd. Everywhere he goes, Jesus is a big thing. He's been journeying around Galilee for three years now. People have heard of this guy and now he's walking past where they are. So every place he goes, just crowds gather. You know, if it's the same crowd kind of following for a few stops or if it's different crowds, each city, they are just, they've heard who this person is and they want to hear something of of who he is. So this isn't his disciples he's addressing, but it is a pool of potential disciples. So he's addressing people who could be disciples. These are not people who are steadfastly always against him or steadfastly in his pocket. It's just people who are curious and he's addressing the crowds. It's also good to see where this, what this follows because these parables, this one, the one before it and the one after kind of flow in a sequence. The parable right before this, which somehow we did not include in our list for this series so I can cover it quickly now, is the parable of the banquet. Jesus tells a story about a king who is going to throw a great party. So he sends his servants out to invite all the people you normally would invite to these things. And to a man, those people reject the invitation. They have something else they need to take care of. One guy needs to go look at a field. One guy needs to go check out his oxen. One guy needs to go check out his wife. These people all have something else they need to go do that's more important than going to this feast. And this infuriates that king. Who, then, who tells his servants, fine, go out into the city and grab the random assortment of everybody else and bring them to the party. So they go door to door, they're picking up the guy from the corner of the street, they get the guy who's selling the vending thing, they just bring them all in, and this still doesn't fill the banquet hall. So he sends them, his servants back out, basically going, just pulling people out of hedges until he gets the banquet hall full. And then he says, those people who rejected my initial invitation they aren't going to taste any of this feast. So that's the parable that comes right before this one. And then as I said, the next chapter after this one is the parable of the three lost things that we covered a few weeks back, the sheep, the coin, and the prodigal son. In this parable of the banquet, Jesus sets up two ideas. There's both a broad call to everyone. This goes to everyone you wouldn't anticipate. Literally, it says like going out just to the hedges and grabbing people and bringing them into this banquet hall. And at the same time, you see people who manage to exclude themselves from the banquet hall because they won't respond. Something else sits more important. So you see two parallel things happening. You see a great, broad call to everyone who would come, and you see a very, a rejection of some people who will not come in, who will not let go of these things, who look at a king and say, no, I want to see my oxen first. Now the problem is the church often seems, we struggle to hold these two in tension. We seem to vacillate between the two. Some places you get a hard legalism that focuses very much on the things that exclude. We see the things that, in this passage, we see the things in passages like Paul where he talks about the sexually immoral, the murderers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you focus on these things and you start to preach against these things and pretty soon you have a list. Don't drink, don't smoke, go to church X number of times, make sure you're tithing for sure, pray. You get a version of this pious person that a Christian is supposed to look like. And it becomes a message where you need to become like this in order to enter into the kingdom, which excludes all the people who can't look like this who are too far away, and you get this push for exclusion. And there's people who delight in that exclusion because it gets them to be where they're supposed to be, and then there's all the unwashed masses down here. And that is what chapter 15 of Luke is taking direct aim at, is the people who have built up these walls of protection around who belongs in the right place and can't imagine anybody else coming, the tax collectors, the sinners, they can't because they can't get, clean themselves up enough to get like this. But then there is a sharp reaction to that, which pushes back, which looks at the Gospels rightly and sees there is no wall like that. That Jesus does not come preaching an exclusion. That he doesn't turn away anybody who would come to him. He doesn't turn anyone away who would come to him. He does tell them what it means, but he doesn't turn anyone away. They can walk up. We have a thief hanging on the cross who Jesus tells, me, tells him, this day you'll, you'll dine with me in paradise. That guy did not have one moment to change the course of his life. He couldn't go make amends for anything. He couldn't get down off the cross and go fix the things he'd done wrong. Or clean his life up to some degree. So we see that. And we rightly work to clear away those obstacles that people want to put in place. To take away the laws, the rules, the things that... Says this is the bar you need to get to in order to enter the kingdom of God. Problem is, sometimes we get so zealous in clearing out those things that we forget to tell people you really actually need to enter into the kingdom of God. We, it can be cut, the bar can get so clear that it's just, yeah, just stay where you are, you're fine, probably. If you, I mean, I've been picturing that this whole week as the, the kingdom of God is this giant house on a hill that you can see from miles away. The sunlight's fading and you have the open door that stands completely unbarred, glowing warmly for people to enter in. And you have one group who wants to put every obstacle they can on the porch. They've got a refrigerator out there, some spare batteries, a couple exercise bikes because no one needs those, just blocking the door. And it keeps getting more and more blocked until people can't even see the glow of the light anymore. And the other group want, well, comes and rightly goes, this is not what it's supposed to be. And you start clearing all that stuff off, and you move it and throw it away, and you get rid of it, and you move the exercise bike in to give one more chance to it. But you get it set up so you can see the door again, but too often we can slip. And this is usually where we live, and we can slip into forgetting to tell people they need to go through the door. And just to be case uh, safe, we start to call the porch the kingdom as well. And we can see how this tension gets drawn out. Like the passage Mike read sounds really harsh. Way is narrow, it's few. Get away from me, I never knew you. And then we see Jesus in other passages being just everyone pretty much. And again, he never rejects anyone who comes to him. Or you hear Paul in Ephesians talking about how it is a gift of grace, not by works by faith that we come into the kingdom, that God saves us. And then 10 minutes later, but just to be clear of this, I can actually quote it, I think I, written, no, I don't have it written down, but it's the sexually immoral that the idolaters will have no inheritance in this kingdom of God. Anyone can come in, no works, but don't be that way. And we, That's why you start to vacillate. And it can feel like it becomes an incoherent story. But this is a coherent message because the expectation is that there is absolutely nothing on that porch that anyone can enter in, that the bar is completely clear, but that you actually have to go through the door. And if you go through the door, your life is changed. Inevitably changed. Paul speaks of this inheritance, the inheritance that people have, the inheritance that they have no part in comes through a spirit being given to us and that spirit if it exists in us for a duration of time will eventually burn away all the things that would stand opposed to God we will not see them completely burned away in this age but they will be burned away I mean we have this idea we don't see Jesus pushing people away we also would, it's absolutely ridiculous if you consider a first century setting to have people, because following Jesus, they meant actually following Jesus. You had to go where he did. You had to do what he did. It makes no sense for people to be at the Jesus rally in Capernaum and one guy is like just weeping about how much he loves Jesus and how he's going to be with Jesus all the days of his life and he's going to follow after him forever. And like two days later, his buddy who was up at the rally as well sees him just there fishing in Capernaum. He's like, I thought you were going to follow Jesus. And he's like, I am in my heart. It makes no sense in that setting. To follow Jesus was to go after Jesus. So this all has to be heard, again, with the understanding that that porch is completely clear. There is no obstacle to getting across that porch. But Jesus also needs us to recognize that discipleship will change us and it will cost something. That cost is not a way of backdoor getting some stuff back on the porch to make it obscure so people can't enter in. My daughter loves the rain. I mean, it's kind of absurd how much she loves the rain. When it starts raining, what she wants to do immediately is put on a raincoat, put on her rain boots, and just run around like an idiot for three hours, just getting soaked. She loves being. It's great for us. It's the easiest parenting we do because for some reason they don't drift beyond the house and they just run around in circles, both of them. But she also loves lunch. And at some point there comes a conflict here. In order to get lunch, she has to come inside. We do not bar her from coming inside. She can come inside whenever she wants for lunch. But if she comes inside, the boots have to come off. The raincoat has to come off. Honestly, everything comes off because she might as well have been wearing a swimsuit. She's drenched. But it all has to come off, and then she can go get lunch. And that means she doesn't get to go back outside in the rain. So she has to weigh the cost. It doesn't mean the lunch now costs something. And it also doesn't mean, which would be putting stuff back on the porch, that we make her stand outside and strip down naked there so that she can come and drive somehow. Because it wouldn't work. The rain is pouring down on her. She can come inside the door and there. She can stand there actually for as long as she wants. But if she wants to get to the reason she came into that door, she has to take the boots off first, and then she can go a couple more steps, and then she can take the coat off. And then slowly, by the time you're done, you've got this little string of wet clothing and a naked child eating at your table, roughly speaking. So we have to understand this is not trying to make it harder to enter the kingdom. But it is saying that if you come, if you leave that porch and actually go inside... Your life is going to be changed, and over the course of time, you are going to bear costs for this. And Jesus highlights three types of costs in this passage. There's relational ones, there's aspirational ones, and there's material ones. First, the relational costs. In verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's always fun when Jesus says those things. <laughs> I have to admit, I kept remembering this passage as being or, which I guess meant you had to choose one you hate, but it's actually and, so it's hating all of those things, including your own life. Now, I hope you understand this hate is not an absolute concept. Jesus is not saying you literally need to go hate your mom to follow after me. If not, the message of Christianity would be love your enemy, hate your mom. That's not the direction he's driving here. It is, the, it is that these loves are in a different league. I mean, I, I swam in high school and college, and people asked me how good I was when I run into people so periodically, and my answer is generally, I was okay. I was probably 100 fastest person in America at my peak, which meant I could beat pretty much everybody I ran into. But when I set the bar to speak of how I was doing, it's not how I was doing against the person who didn't swim. I'm speaking of the Olympians I trained with who smoked me on a consistent basis. Compared to them, I was nothing. Compared to 99.999% of America at the time, I could outswim everybody. But they were just a different league of comparison. Similarly, Jesus is not saying you can't love your mom. If anything, he's calling you to love your mom more. But he's saying by comparison, my love is in a different league entirely. It is something that they don't even deserve to be compared. It's hatred by comparison. And it should be understood that this, again, is not to diminish the love you have for your mother. It is to raise it up. It's just to raise another love greater. It is a replacement, not a diminishment. We struggle to understand, though, the cost that he's driving at here for two reasons. The first is that religion just is not that decisive here. Divisive here, sorry. Sorry. There are still cultures where converting to a different religion or marrying somebody outside of your religion will get you harshly ostracized from your family and potentially killed. We do not live in that culture. We think that religion is sharply divisive in America, but think when religion actually does become divisive. It's when it slips into politics. Politics is what actually divides America sharply. If you look at polls in America, most Americans are far, they would much prefer their children to marry somebody of a different religion than they would of a different political party. If you were, generally speaking, the average evangelical Republican would rather their child, statistically speaking, marry a Jewish Republican than they would a Christian Democrat. That is the state of America right now, this is divisive. Think about the familial strife you saw after Trump's election. Think about the annual articles we get every year about how to go home and talk to your family on Thanksgiving. And think about the matching lack of articles about how to do that in terms of religion. This is more the division that Jesus is driving at, that sort of division that can cause strife around a family table, that can make those relationships pull apart. I'm completely lost in my notes. I apologize. Oh, next page. There we go. I mean, he, Jesus is more looking for to imagine the challenges that come in a family where a Hillary Clinton supporter goes home for Thanksgiving in November of 2016 to her Donald Trump fervent fan parents, and that sort of difference than he is what we generally see for religious differences here. The other reason we really strive or fail to see the challenges that Jesus is driving here, the cost, is we honestly just don't care about our families that much. It is a rite of passage in America to distance yourself from your parents' beliefs, by and large. As opposed to a more traditional culture where family ties were almost everything, and this was the status group that you were most invested in. So in order to make this work, you have to think in terms of very sharp, abhorrent beliefs which usually sits around politics in our culture, and imagine them happening with the people you care about the most, whose opinions you care about the most: your spouse, your coworkers. Probably your friends is who this falls in. Who are the people you would be most concerned about to know they thought something you thought was just beyond the pale? That's who Jesus is driving at here. And he's saying this can cost you that way. He's not saying what you need to do is show up next time you see them and go, you're all sinners. Again, the love here is intended to be great. What he's saying is when you... come to follow me, you can expect social cost. The ultimate social status you need to be concerned about is your status in relationship to me, and these things have to fall by, be controlled by that. And he's saying that coming after me will cost you your social accessi- acceptability to some degree, and you need to be okay with that. And again, this is not a replacement. It's not a reduction of those other loves, which makes them more painful. It would be easier if we start following Jesus and we stop caring over here. But Jesus says, love them even more, which makes those rejections even harder to bear. But he says, this is the cost of following me. The second cost is the aspirational cost. If we continue in verse 27, Who does not, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This idea of burying your own cross is popular with Jesus. Uh, he says it five times in the three synoptic gospels, which means he probably said it a whole lot more than that as he was journeying. Uh, it shows up through the epistles again and again, uh, with at least in variations of being crucified to the world and other such things. So this is not something that's just an obscure concept to Christianity. Um, and again, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to literally take up his cross and die. So this is also not something just abstract in this world. They knew what it meant to bear your own cross. This is not some clever idiom that Jesus thought up on the spot. Now, broadly speaking, this is talking about, I mean, this can cover the relational costs. This can cover material costs. This obviously covers suffering. But there's something deeper that's being driven at here. What does a person burying their own cross lack? They don't have a very sunny future. They've lost their freedom. When you have picked up your cross, you have lost your ability to choose your own path, and that path is going to somewhere where things die. And yet that's what Jesus says people need to be willing to do to follow after him. If you go through that door, if you leave that porch and walk through, your life will be changed. You will no longer be in control of your path the way you were prior, previously, or at least the way you thought you were previously. Doors will be open, yes, but doors will also be closed. We gain things in this life. There's this passage where, that I love where Peter starts to brag to Jesus about the things that he's given up to follow Jesus, and Jesus basically cuts him off. And it's like, yeah, no one who comes to, who gives up these things to follow me doesn't gain a 100 times over in friends, family, etc. So there are gains, but there are also great costs that come with these. And the truth is, in our setting, by and large, those balance out usually in the positive. We live in a culture where that still works heavily. But if you think of a culture where martyrdom is consistent or where there's greater oppression, really serious oppression at all, you end up with that always not balancing out in this life. A martyr who converts and three days later is found out and asked to recant and refuses to and dies for it, if you take their life on the scale, Christianity was a pretty bum deal for them. But we cannot view Christianity through the lens of this age only. If we don't have an eternal view, Christianity doesn't make sense. Heidi, I wish wish I'd checked with her, she said something in Home Group a couple weeks back that was, she said when she was talking about how to live kingdom living, she referred to it as living with like an eternal vantage point of thinking of how these things affect something out there in the distance, how what I do here has eternal ramifications. That is proper. We have to view this life with an eternal vantage point. Now, there is the idea that if we live with a a mindset towards heaven, for lack of a better term, we become useless here on earth. But the Bible pushes the exact opposite direction. When, In Paul's great defense of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about how Jesus died and was raised, and he is going to come and reign again, having defeated everything to reign forever, he ends that basically exhorting us to therefore live well in this life and do good The point is, because of that, we live better here. Because of that, we can endure a bad situation here. You can live faithfully in a bad marriage. You can live faithfully at a bad job. You can live faithfully when it seems like your opportunities are actually cut off and shut down because if you have that mindset, even 80 years is but a blink in comparison to eternity. So we can live faithfully here. But to be honest, it also shows when we try and balance out, is that worth it because of how it impacts here? It actually tips our hands to where we're putting our value. That's an entirely different sermon. But, I mean, if it is eternally valuable and it still is a slight detriment here, it's still eternally valuable. But, thank God, eternally valuable and helpful here. So, way to go. So we are to come to Jesus, knowing that some of our aspirations, knowing that some of the goals we had for our lives, knowing that some of the things that we sought might be shut down because we follow him. And again, this is not to say those things just get diminished and that's how it works. That because he becomes our greater aspiration, we don't really care about those things. Like I can stop caring about my kid's future because Jesus, or who needs to say for retirement because Jesus Or who cares about grandkids? Because Jesus. It actually, we still have those cares, which again, makes what we have to, the decisions we make on a regular basis for Jesus, more challenging and more painful. Because we sow ourselves into these things, knowing that he's ultimately in control and that he remains first. We give ourselves to a job, knowing that we might be called away from it. We give ourselves to our grandchildren, knowing that our ultimate goal is not just to bounce them on our knee, but that we might spend eternity walking with them. So we come, knowing that there could be a cost. That sometimes it will come from an external, and sometimes it simply comes because we embrace other things. We don't spend as much time. We spend more time helping the poor. We spend more time in prayer. So we have less time to do the things that would make this life full. We lose some hobbies. But again, Jesus says to do this. You need to do this to come after me. The final cost is the material cost. And that's skipping down to verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. One commentator translates that word renounce as leave behind. It's the Greek word from which we eventually get apostasy. So it has this idea of turning away from something and leaving it behind. And the idea here is not a tithe, it's not a portion, it's all. So it's who does not renounce all their possessions cannot be my disciple. This is in line with what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. One thing you lack, sell all that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. This is generally taught as a very sharp and pointed challenge to the rich young ruler's specific idolatries. That it is not something that generally is prescriptive for every person who would come to Jesus. We do not all need to go sell all that we have so that we can follow Jesus. And that is true, (laughs) 100% true, don't worry. We're not pushing to go sell everything we have. But, and it is aimed, it seems, at the rich young ruler's specific idolatry. But what we have to recognize as we look at this and as we look at the rest of Scripture, what Jesus asked of the rich young ruler, he can ask of every single one of us as he sees fit. Jesus could ask each one of us to sell all that we have, give it to the poor so we can follow him the way he wants us to follow him. He doesn't need to go get like it signed off in triplicate by the Trinity and then put it to a board approval so that he can be our master in this disciple. We don't get a vote. If that's what he asks, that's what he asks. And what he's asking here of us as his, his disciples is to give him that right to say, all my possessions are yours. I am a steward of them as long as you see fit. And again, this is not a loss in our, fa- our, our side. The poorest person on earth who has Jesus from an eternal standpoint is wealthier than the everybody else on earth who does not. The inheritance is so great that we have in Christ. And it is not to say that we then despise these things. I like nice things. We had a nice meal yesterday. My wife likes to talk about how much she loves our van. And it's nice. She really loves that van. But, and these things are blessings. And we also, but we need to recognize that we are stewards of the things that God has given us. That he has given them this, us to, for us to steward That he can ask of us to give them away for our good, but he also asks of us to give them away for the kingdom's good. Again, with us still being wealthier on the other side. If we go through that door, if we walk in off the porch into the warm glow of that house, we have to recognize that in the long run we are ceding over control of our possessions to Jesus. He might give us promotions and wealth, and blessings that we can be blessed and we can give to others, and he might call us to a lower state. We give him the choice. And if we do not give him that right, our possessions, our wealth, our jobs, our children's college fund, that minimum level of life we need to maintain becomes the thing that dictates the degree to which we will follow Jesus. We will go this far and no further because... That's not how I live. So we have a relational cost that we accept with discipleship. We give Jesus the position of status in our relationship hierarchy. We have an aspirational cost. We lay down our dreams for the future and try and find out what dreams he has for us. And we have a material cost where we say, you have all my possessions. You tell me how to use them. I know that I have a greater inheritance than you. And know what Jesus says with each one of these. Just to drive in the points. If anyone does not hate these people, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is referring to who is not able. This is not saying that Jesus bars the door. Again, that door stands open. He does not go, oh, nope, not you. Everyone can come in. This is not speaking of salvation, saying they can't come in. This is that call remains open for everyone and no one needs to clean themselves up. But it is saying recognize what happens if you come after me as my disciple, if you're truly going to live as my disciple. You recognize that you cannot live on that porch. I mean, the porch is cozy. In some ways, it has the best of both worlds. You get the warm glow behind you. You can kind of read by that light. You know that if anything comes up out there, you've got some, you can probably run back inside. There's some defenses. There might be people you really like in there. But then you also get the outdoor air as well. You get the best of both worlds, it seems like. But Jesus says we cannot live there as his disciples. We have to come in. We have to set down those things and follow after him. And he says this is foundational. These are what characterize our ability to be disciples. They are the foundational element. And there is part of me that just bristled this because I'm like, sure, it has to be love. We're Christians, love. It's love. Not these things coming after Jesus. And in a sense, it's true. I mean, we're Trinitarian, so setting Jesus as our greatest love is loving God as, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And doing these things, we trust in discipleship of Jesus, we will be loving of others. But this, that love is not the foundational characteristic of following after Jesus. And I think I can make the illustration through a, um, I can make the point through an illustration, Sorry. Like, what's the defining element of a skyscraper? This is not a hard question. Their height. The defining thing by which you identify a skyscraper is its height. You can look for miles and you can pick out the skyscrapers. They're tall. It's not challenging to know which is a skyscraper. But what enables that height? It's the construction, it's the way it's built, it's the material that's used, and it's the foundation. Skyscrapers are built with steel. You can't get the height a skyscraper gets until you have steel. That's why we don't have buildings that tall prior to steel. And you can't get a, a skyscraper to stand where it is without foundations that are deep. The world's second tallest building has foundations, it's 2,000 feet tall, which is absurd. It has foundations that are 283 feet deep. That is a 23 to 25-story building. It's basically taking the office I work in, stacking three of them on top of each other, and pushing the whole thing underground. And that's just the foundation so it stands. Because without that structure, the height will cause it to crumble. And without the foundations, it's not going to stay where it's supposed to be. It'll be over there somewhere. So too with love and discipleship. If we try to love like Jesus, try to love as Christians without this structure and without those foundations, we will not be able to do it as we're meant to. At best, without that structure, it's a facade. Because the weight of which the love we're supposed to bear for this world can't be supported without the foundation and structure in Jesus. And we definitely are not going to stand where we're supposed to be. At best, we're going to baptize the elements of our culture that seem closest to the gospel that we know. But we are meant to drive down and live in a completely different way, and it's because of those foundations, and it's because of the structure of following after Jesus. And I'm not saying like a program. I mean simply being dug down deep in Jesus that allows us to support the great structure of Christian love. It's because Jesus comes and drives down and says, your greatest relational Of uh, loyalty must be me and he drives down and says your greatest aspiration has to be me and he drives down and says your greatest material possession has to be me and nothing else can compare to those things and it's because that's driven down so deep into the bedrock of him that we can stand without falling no matter what the weight that comes of it is that christian love can stand and stand is something different in this world And that's where the parables come into this, (laughs) our series on the parables. They're fairly straightforward, actually. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going down, going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to, with 10,000 men, meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. As I said, they're pretty straightforward, and they run in parallel. In both cases, you have a task that's being considered. You have a tower to be built, potentially. And this is the sort of tower that most likely would sit like in the middle of a vineyard as a watchtower. So it's a fairly big structure being built by some guy in his property to give better protection to his property. On the other side, you have a battle or a war being considered by a king. So two things of decent weight being considered. And in both cases, they come with costs. In building a tower, there's a good deal of time and material that you need to devote to building the tower if you're going to succeed. Similarly, in war, you need to make sure you have the men and the strategies to meet the army that's coming to oppose you. So what I love is in both cases, the person told, said that they, they sit down. It's like they don't even take it standing up. They sit down and count the costs, whether or not they can do this thing. And both have risks. If you miscalculate on whether or not you can complete this tower, what you end up with is a giant monument to your inept planning. That probably becomes a death trap and at the very least allows everybody from town who can see it for miles to look out and remember oh yeah, that's Joe who doesn't complete towers. And on the other side, there's death. If you go out to war and you're going to lose and you're the king, it's probably you losing your life and all of your family you losing your life because you've now been overthrown. So there's great costs. So the call is to sit down and consider them. And the point is, weigh, if you're going to do something great, if you're going to endeavor to something, weigh whether or not you can do it. And so Jesus, too, has laid out the cost of discipleship. He's laid down the cost of what it means to follow after Him. He's saying, "Measure and determine: Are you willing to come follow faithfully after Me?" Because we need to know that the life of a faithful disciple cannot be lived without laying these things down—not perfectly. Jeez, oh, I hope that doesn't come across—not perfectly at all. I miss these things probably like 17 times on the drive over here. I mean, it doesn't take long to not put Jesus first or to get concerned about your possessions or to be concerned that Jesus is going to somehow block one of your aspirations. We are not going to live this out perfectly in this age. The striving is to greater and greater and greater. Let Jesus shape us as we live in relationship to these things. But there's a major difference in these parables. In the first, the situation is entirely in the hand of the land, hands of the landowner. He gets to decide if he wants to build the tower. If he doesn't build it this season, he could try next season. If he doesn't want to do anything, if he, doesn't even, if he sits down to count the costs and he just kind of forgets to count them, he just doesn't do anything. Inaction is a possibility here. He's just simply he needs to take a stop. Uh, He needs to count the cost and see whether or not he can do this. Does he want to bear the costs needed to build this tower? Does he see the benefit of the tower worth bearing the costs? Is he going to need to cut down on a few parties or investing in a different field so that he can invest in this tower because this is what he needs to do? And so we need to consider our discipleship. Do we want to follow after Jesus this way? And if not, we should stop pretending. Pretending is living on the porch. It's sitting there close to the door, but not willing to walk in. And what will happen is eventually the weather will change and you will grow bitter because it doesn't seem to match up to the warmth you heard this kingdom had. Life doesn't seem to work the way the kingdom seems to indicate it is. discipleship doesn't follow the way it is my sins aren't falling away I'm still struggling in all the same areas with no seeming change and it just grows bitter and angry so just do yourself a favor and don't pretend if you don't want to bear costs of following Jesus but if you do throw everything into that recognize what it is sitting here that this tower needs to be built it's worth the cost And again, we don't do this perfectly, but pray every morning consistently that God would help you overcome your own shortcomings in these things. Seek counsel on how you can do it better. What can I do differently? How can I grow in these areas? Look and long for the day when finally all the things that hinder us from walking the way we're supposed to walk will be cast aside because it will happen. There will be a day when Jesus will be our chief relationship without anything really standing in bad form to it. When he will be our greatest aspiration, when he will be our greatest material gain, that will happen and long for that. But in the second story, the king is having the decision pressed upon him. He doesn't get to sit and decide and wonder whether or not he's going to go out. He, if Indecision in that story is a decision. The other king will be at his door. Sitting on his hands is not an option. He needs to sit down, count the costs, and act quickly. The first parable asks us to consider whether we are willing to bear the costs of becoming disciples. The second parable asks us to whether we can bear the costs of not being one. Because a greater king is coming. The door stands open, but he is closer today than he was this morning, He's closer right now than he was this morning. And each of us is closer to our death than we were when we woke up. So we have a question. Are you willing to follow Jesus? Are you willing to bear those costs? And at the same time, can you afford not to? What Jesus wants to do here is lay down simply the land so we can see it. He wants us to understand and to take measure. He wants us to see the worth of him and truly follow after that. And he wants us to not pretend we are somewhere where we aren't. So he asks us to sit down and count the costs. Thank you.